We're going to uh, pick up in Zechariah chapter 13. So go ahead and start making your way to Zechariah 13. We've been, uh, I guess it's been now almost three months making our way through this book. feel as if the Lord is uh, encouraging us and challenging us at the same time uh, as we read it, which is certainly good uh, to get from the Word of God. We've learned some important things. We've learned that there are three main sections to this book. There's 14 chapters, three main sections. A first section uh, with a whole series of visions designed to encourage a discouraged people. Uh, a second section right there, chapter 7 and chapter 8, where uh, Zechariah wasn't he actually asked the question, but he said, can I take this one? And he answered the question. It was a theological question. Should we keep fasting and mourning for the destroyed temple and destroyed city of Jerusalem, now that we're back in Jerusalem and rebuilding the temple, and you remember uh, the Lord speaking through Zechariah, kind of turned it around and said, well, you know what, the ritual in and of itself isn't important. Why don't we talk about the condition of your heart? And we, we considered that. We spent some time looking at that. And then a few weeks back, we jumped into the final section. Now, the final section was written uh, or spoken at the time uh, almost 50 years or so after the beginning part of the book. So there's been a significant period of time between the beginning of the book and the end of the book. The people are back in the land. The temple has been rebuilt. They've resumed worship and things like that there. The city is relatively safe. And in reality, what began to happen is a complacency began to set in in the nation once more. And it's to that that God uh, prompts and he moves Zechariah to deliver two sermons, two burdens, two oracles, uh, depending on the version that you're reading. The first of those, chapter 9 through 11, and the second being chapter 12 through chapter 14. Now, we looked at the first of those a little while ago, and we started the second of those sermons last week. And so just a, by way of reminder, it would be great if we could do it all in one sitting, but unfortunately, we don't have the time. Uh, and we're not even going to finish the book today. We'll, we'll meet again next week uh, if the Lord hasn't returned. Uh, and we'll finish it then, I, I, I anticipate. But what we've learned is that God promised a pouring out of his spirit upon the Jewish people, which would lead to a national repentance. That's what this last message is about. Now, remember, it's a message. And so you, you kind of give some information. The information is God's going to pour out his spirit on this generation, leading to a national repentance. But we don't just come to learn knowledge. We don't just, you know, have our quiet times and, all right, I learned another fact. If I ever get on Jeopardy and they have that Bible category, I'm ready. You know, that's not why we, we come to our Bible. It's important to learn facts. It's important to learn information. But we learn that information. We learn those stories, those accounts, so that we can begin to apply them. And as we come now to chapter 13, the application of the information, which we learned in chapter 12, will begin to manifest itself or bear witness. So the information that we learned is that there is going to be a day where God is going to pour out his spirit on the nation of Israel, the nation as a whole, and it, it will result in a national repentance. Again, to quote the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, that will be the day when all Israel will be saved. I remember the fights my friends had, my Christian friends, so they're just like debates when no one's fist fighting here, because I would have won. Uh, we're having these uh, debates, we're having these discussions and arguments over what does that mean all Israel will be saved? That doesn't make sense, that's not right. They don't have to become Christians or whatever. As time has gone on and people have taken a deep breath, 
uh, we've been able to kind of think it through. And it's when God pours out his spirit on all of Israel that all Israel is going to be saved, the, the, the nation as a whole. And so that began in chapter 12, verse 10. Let's, let's go back and reread that. Chapter 12, 10 says, Now I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me on whom they have pierced, they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and they will weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, the mourning in Jerusalem will be as great as the mourning for Hadad Ramon in the plain of Megiddo. The land shall mourn, each family by itself, the house of David, its family by itself and their wives, the family of the house of Nathan by itself and their wives, the family of the house of Levi by itself and their wives, the family of the Shimeites by itself and their wives, and all the families that are left, each by itself and their wives by themselves. And so there will be this pouring out, this national repentance. God's going to do a work in the hearts of his people. And it's important for us to take note of the work that God will subsequently do. I think this is very important. So God pours out a spirit, the people are repenting, and then what? What's that look like after that? Well, chapter 13, 1 will tell us, it says, now on that day, there will be a fountain open for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and from uncleanness. There will be a cleansing that follows the repentance. And that's really important for us to understand. Because as we go on from here, what we're going to see is that that cleansing, which followed that repentance, is going to lead to a change in behavior. But the order of operations is crucial. Because it's important for us to take note that the cleansing doesn't come as a result of the change of behavior which I think a lot of people get wrong. And a lot of people that, you know, they, they have this sense, God's doing a calling, there's a, something stirring, they're dissatisfied in life, unbelievers I'm talking about, but God doing that stirring work, and they think, you know what, I'm going to turn over a new leaf. I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to start changing my behavior. And perhaps they do that for a period of time, and then they go back to their old ways, or they do that for a period of time, but there still seems to be something that is going on inside of them because there has not been a heart change. It begins in the heart, and then the behavior will follow. And so the cleansing that comes about here in 13.1, as a result of what we read in 12.10, it comes about because in 12.10 it says, they looked upon him whom they have pierced. Remember, that word means to gaze upon, to consider what it all meant. They took it all in as they watched and they observed. And then the cleansing, as you see, it, it says in verse 10 as well, it came about because of their pleas for God's mercy. So they looked on Christ. They realized as they thought about it that they were the ones that actually crucified Christ. Our own sin put him on the cross. Their heart was broken. Their heart was cut. They began to cry out to God for mercy. And so it's the remarkable thing about the faith is that we realize we're the ones that did it to him, and yet we can still go to him and ask for his mercy and ask for his grace. We're guilty, and yet we're welcome. It's remarkable. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And so their cleansing then came about, realizing they pierced him. Their cleansing came about when they realized and they cried out to him for mercy, and their cleansing came about, as it says in verse 10 there, because of the brokenness of heart that they had 
experienced. Again, to use the Apostle Paul's word uh, in, in a different place, however, it is by grace that they were saved through their faith. Saved through their faith, not as a result of their works. Now, as we move into the next chapter, this is not to say that good works don't follow the initial coming to God in faith. And so we repent, we come to God in faith, we experience a cleansing, we don't just return back to our old way. We don't just continue to mistreat people. We don't just continue to be selfish. God begins a changing work in us that impacts our behavior. And we, call, we might call that good works. In fact, if you go to that passage, we just put the Ephesian passage there that says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God. The very next line, after just you know, solidifying it's by faith, the very next line says this, for we are his workmanship. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. And so there is a place for good works, and good works are important. And it goes on to say that God prepared those good works for us beforehand, that we should walk in them. And so no one can or no one ever will be saved because of the works that they have done. But that certainly does not negate the fact that works will be done by those that have been saved. Now, if you're here today and you're not quite sure, what does he mean by saved? He keeps talking about this idea of saved. And if you're not familiar with it, it just simply means this, to be saved. Have you been saved, brother? If you watch that movie, you'll see that term thrown around there a lot. And it means to be free from the penalty of our sin or to be saved from the penalty of our sin. It means that a cleansing work has occurred that has removed the consequences of that sin. And that, is the only, and that is the only place where a person can begin a relationship with God, is having been saved or cleansed. It has to begin there. It has to begin at the cross. Last week I referenced this scripture, and I think it, it just nails down. This is what I'm talking about. Ezekiel chapter 36. He says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. And from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a soft heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and cause you to be careful to obey my rules. And so if a person has been forgiven and a person has been cleansed from their sin, that person is given a new heart. John, the apostle, he refers to it, well, Jesus does, John quotes him, as the born again experience, the born anew, the born from above. You'll be given a new heart. And that's what Ezekiel is indicating here. And that new heart will result in a subsequent change in our manner of living. Again, if you look at the way Ezekiel closed out that little passage I read, he said that a new spirit, which we know to be God's spirit, will be put within them, and then notice, causing them to walk in God's statutes and causing them to obey God's rules. And so now, as Zechariah picks up verse 2 of chapter 13, he's going to discuss the reality of what that's going to look like in this new nation of Israel. So the nation of Israel, all Israel has been saved. Now, what is that going to look like? What kind of an impact will that have? Is it just going to be the same old Israel that it was the day before this event happened in their life, the week before, the year before this happened in their life? 
And the reality is this, that if, if a person is changed, so let's say this, if this person here is changed, they're going to be different. And then let's say their wife happens or husband happens to be changed. Well, now husband and wife are different. And then let's say their kids are changed. Now that whole household is different. And let's say they reach out to their neighbors across the street. And now their neighbor's household is changed. And the next neighbor's household is changed. And the next one and the next one. Pretty soon, you have an entirely different community, don't you? Well, imagine that on a national level. As God is doing that work in the hearts of each of these individuals, and soon enough it's spreading and it's spreading and it's spreading, well, as you can imagine, the entire nation is going to be different. And that would we would call a national revival. And when a national revival comes upon the land of Israel, as we learned last week that it would, soon the entire nation is transformed. And Zechariah is going to go in now and explain some of those transformations. He starts in verse 2. He says, Now, and on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I also will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And if anyone again prophesies, his father and mother who bore him will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Yikes. All right, there's a reason, and I'll draw your attention to it. But here, he's pointing out the transformation that's going to take place. These are the uh, impact or the effect of the cleansing work that happened in verse 1. The first is that the idols of the land and the people's idolatry will be so thoroughly removed from the land, as it says in verse 2, that even the memory of those idols will be remembered no more. And so there will be a national cleansing. And we know from our study of the Old Testament that there was that perennial problem of idolatry in the nation where the Lord had to explain to them, I'm the Lord your God. There are no others and bring no other gods before me. And again and again and again, we just see that loop where the people go right back into their idolatry and God has to send a prophet and God has to bring judgment and do a cleansing work and the people, uh, they forsake it, they put it aside and then a generation, new generation comes along and they go right back to it. And so here the Lord says that idolatry will be so removed from the land that the knowledge of it will be remembered no more. Maybe you've had situations in your life like that where you can't even remember. My wife and I are struggling. We're getting a little bit older. And we're struggling with experiences that we've had. We're like, that was us. I don't even remember that. And I know some of you old people, you remember that too. Or don't remember that, I guess, uh, is the better way of saying it. They won't even remember that idolatry was so prevalent in the nation. That's a changing work indeed. The second thing we see in the second portion of verse 2 where they're going to deal with the, the, the false prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So I'll read it to you. It says, and also I will remove from the land the prophets. Now we don't like to insert words in our Bibles, but for the context here you could. You could add the word false. That's what it's talking about, the false prophets. And also I will remove the land from the land the false prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. And then, in their newly born zeal for the Lord, it will be so great that the people will no longer tolerate the existence of lying prophets, false prophets. And we see that in verse 3. So that if anyone again prophesies, his own mother and father who bore him will say to him, you shall not live for you speak lies in the names of the Lord. Even the, the family members will condemn the false prophet. 
for their misleading statements. And the reason why that's pointed out there is, is it goes back to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6 through 10, and Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 20. Talk about the, the penalty for the false prophet in the land. The point for our purpose is that the people in this day will be serious about obeying the word of the Lord. No more, ah, it's okay, let him do what he wants to do. No, we're going to follow the Lord. God did a changing work in our lives, and this is the prescribed penalty for the lying false prophet. He goes on in verse 4. He says, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. Again, every false prophet. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive. That seems like a good thing. Uh, we don't like hairy cloaks. But he will say, I'm no prophet. I'm a worker of the soil. For a man sold me in my youth. And I've been a farmer all my days. And if one asks him, well, then what are these wounds on your back? He will say, oh, they're the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Why would your friends be whooping you on the back? I don't, I don't understand. Well, I'll tell you. So he's, Zechariah is addressing this radical change that will occur in the nation that even the, the false prophet will begin recognizing there's no place for me here. It's not accepted here. And they'll move on to that next location. And then people say, well, wait a minute. Aren't you that false prophet? Yes, you are. I see that hairy cloak you're wearing. Now, we know Elijah, for instance, he wore this hairy cloak, it seems. Some versions are slightly different there, that he was a hairy man. But I don't know, one or the other. But he had this hairy cloak, and it began to sort of designate him as sort of a prophet in the land. And so it seems people are trying to kind of tap into that idea. I'm, I'm a prophet like in the line of the Elijahs. And they would fake it. They'd come up with a, a false prophecy of sort. As you can see there, they put on the hairy cloak in order to deceive. Well, they're not going to do that anymore because they're not welcome in that society anymore. People aren't interested in their lies any longer. When people begin to call them out, they'll say, no, 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 I'm not a prophet. I've been a farmer all my days. You know, I was a little kid. I got hired out to start working as a farmer. That's who I am. That's what I do. They'll be ashamed, if you will, of their visions. They'll put away their hairy cloak. When they're suspected of it, they'll deny it vigorously. It talks in verse 6 there. Well, what about the wounds that are on your back? Oh, those? I, I got those when I was hanging out with my friends, and we decided to beat each other. <laughs> and that, that's where I got those here. Now, verse 6 is an interesting verse. I think it's important. It's a side, like, point right now. Oftentimes this verse is applied to Jesus. You know, so how did Jesus got beat, he got whipped before he went to the cross. And oftentimes this verse is applied to him. And, and who did that to him? Well, ultimately it was his friends. It was the Jewish people that delivered him over to Rome and, and things like that. And that's true. He was delivered over by his friends to Rome and they whooped his back and, and all of that. But I don't think this verse is properly applied to Jesus here. Um, rather, I think it's applied to the false prophets. That's the context of what we're talking about. And you remember in 1 Kings chapter 18, everybody remember that chapter? Probably not, uh, but you know the story, where Elijah went head-to-head -head with 450 prophets of Baal. Remember that now? And they, they had the situation where they would both call out to their God, Elijah, you call out to your God, we'll call out to our God, and the one who answers by fire, that's the real God. And so Elijah says, that sounds great. You go first. And the 450 prophets of Baal, it says from morning to midday and then midday to the oblation. The oblation is the evening sacrifice. 
I don't know what time in the evening, let's just say it was 6 p.m. All right, so from morning to 6 p.m., these prophets uh, of Baal, 450 of them, were dancing around, screaming, yelling to, their, to get the attention of their gods. Halfway through, Elijah decides it would be fun to mock them. And he says, yell louder. Perhaps your God can't hear you. Oh, wait a minute. It's a good chance he's in the, the lavatory right now. Why don't you give him a second and then yell, you know, and all this. And Elijah, that's rude. All right, but that's what Elijah, yell louder, yell louder. And they're yelling, they're yelling, they're yelling, they're dancing around, they're screaming. And it says, and they began to cut themselves, hoping, I don't know, that the blood would, like, let God think, like, oh, well, he really means it now, or, or whatever it may be. And then there's this remarkable verse. It's 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 29. It says, now, at midday, as midday passed, they raved on and on until the time of the offering of the oblation. And notice this, but there was no voice. That, that is, there was no answer. And the reason that no one answered and that no one paid attention, because there were no gods. They were false gods. But what they did was they began to cut themselves. And I think that is what is being referenced in the book of Zechariah. And so you can certainly make an application to the Lord, but I don't think that's the proper application. The proper application is you have these false prophets that would do all of these things to convince people of their sincerity. But in reality, they were deceiving. Well, not in that day. And it won't be accepted in that day. There will be this national revival, a national changing of the heart. God will do a cleansing work that will result in their actions. They will put away their idols. They won't even remember the fact that idolatry was a problem in the land. We move on to verse 7, and this time we are making reference to Jesus. Verse 7 says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones, and the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. And I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will cast upon my name, and I will answer them. Excuse me, they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Does that last phrase sound familiar? That's what Jim read earlier from the, the book of Hosea, I believe it was. Right, Jim, where you at? Okay, was it Hosea? Yeah. And so this is not just some message that Zechariah is coming up. This is the word of the Lord, referring to this restoration of the people. But here now, the Lord is speaking to, or making reference to at least, the Lord Jesus. And notice what is said. It says, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Now, unless you think I'm just sort of making it up that, well, you know, that one's referring to the Lord. Well, because Jesus himself said it was, and it refers to the Lord Jesus. Matthew chapter 26. This is the evening of the Last Supper. When Jesus is gathered with his disciples, he's explaining to them that I'm going uh, away and that where I am you can't be. Come on, Lord, can't we go with you? Why can't we go with you? And he, he has this whole discussion, John 14, 15, 16, 17 or so, leading up to his going into the Garden of Gethsemane where he's arrested and taken off where he will eventually be crucified. And on the evening of that meal, that last supper with his disciples, Jesus said this. He said, you will all fall away because of me this night. Not me, Lord, Peter said. I'll go with you wherever. 
They may all, these guys, but I won't. And he said, Peter, you know, even you. He says, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And so we know for sure that this Zechariah passage is speak. this portion, verse 7, is speaking of Jesus, the true shepherd, as he was called last week. Now notice the most amazing of things will happen, I think, to this shepherd. Again, look at verse 7 once more. It says, awake, O sword, against my shepherd. The first thing that I want you to draw your attention to, look at the last phrase of that verse, or of uh, the, the opening portion of that verse. It said, look who's speaking. It says, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, the Lord of hosts is what we typically would refer to as God the Father. All right? And so God the Father speaking says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Now we know who the shepherd is. We just proved it. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. That's God the Son. That's the Lord Jesus. Notice also what it says in verse 7, the beginning portion of the verse. It says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me. Now those words there, those who stand, or he who stands next to me, are extremely important, especially in light of the fact that it's the Lord of hosts that is speaking. Now, depending on the version that you are reading today, it is, it's either going to say, who stands next to me, or it might say, my associate, or your version might say something like, my companion. However it's translated in the various translations that we are reading here, the meaning is the same in all cases. It's a term that is translated elsewhere in our Bibles pretty uniformly. For instance, the book of Leviticus, it appears on a number of occasions, five, six different occasions, and there it's translated as my near neighbor. More literally, it's one who dwells side by side with another as an equal. Who dwells side by side with another as an equal. Who's speaking? God the Father. Who's he speaking about? God the Son. And it's, it is his companion, his associate, one who stands next to me. This is a passage that you can point to that show that the scriptures point out that Jesus is God. He's not created by the Father. He's not lesser than the Father, though he did submit himself to the Father. He is his companion. He is his near neighbor. He is one who dwells side by side as an equal. And so the Lord Jesus is a man, as the verse tells us. But as a result of this phrase stands next to me, we learn that he cannot be a mere man, but that he must be one who participates in the divine nature. And the solution, of course, well, how can a man participate in the divine nature? Well, the solution, of course, is the incarnation. It's what we just celebrated two, two months back. Remember Christmas was two months ago? That's the incarnation, the coming in the flesh of God, fully God and fully man. And so we have God the Father speaking about God the Son, and then we read this phrase, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. It's God the Father himself who calls for the shepherd to be struck. Here's how Isaiah the prophet said it. He said, It was the will of the Lord, the Father, to crush him, the Son. He has put him to grief when his soul makes an offering for guilt. 
And the cross is the place where that offering for guilt was made, which is important for us because Zechariah wrote 400 years, 450 years before the cross even occurred. In fact, the means of execution of the cross wasn't really invented even yet when Zechariah wrote these words. So we see that the cross was the plain, planned, ordained work of God predicted of 100 years or so or 400 years or so before it actually happened. And there at the cross, the good shepherd was smitten as he lay down his life for his sheep. You remember John 10, I'm the good shepherd, Jesus said, and I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and he said, I lay down my life for the sheep at the cross. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Verse 7, it adds that phrase I just read again, the sheep will be scattered. And again, according to Matthew 26, according to Mark chapter 14, we know Jesus applied that to himself. When his disciples ran from him, they abandoned him and ran from him uh, in the garden. Mark, a young man who would later go on to write the gospel of Mark, seems as if he was there. And he saw it all taken down, and someone grabbed his cloak, and he pulled out from his cloak, and he ran away naked, it tells us. His entire support, all of his supporters left him there. And they had to, because the work that had to be done was a work that only he could do. He couldn't have a cheering section alongside of him. It was just him going into the presence of God and paying the price of our sin, which we'll celebrate in a few moments today. In the context of Zechariah's prophecy, what becomes evident is the scattering of the sheep that Jesus referenced was only a sort of a, a partial and, if you will, that near fulfillment of that passage. The full fulfillment of that passage would be the scattering of the Jewish people. You remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem? This is on Palm Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. And he's riding in on that donkey, and he's coming in. And we, we shared the picture here uh, where you, know, you come down that hill, and Jerusalem is all in front of you, probably coming from Bethany. And he's coming in on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And Jesus begins to weep over the city of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only you knew the day of your visitation. But they didn't, unfortunately. They crucified him less than a week later. And Jesus began, to, the reason he was weeping is because he knew they were going to reject him and he knew the consequences of that rejection. And there would be a scattering of his people. And in less than 35 years, less than a generation, generation oftentimes being about 40 years, in less than a generation, the Romans came in, they ransacked the city, they besieged it for a period of about four years, they eventually, they broke in, they killed so many of the people, and the rest of the people just sort of ran for their lives. And they were scattered, and they remained scattered from 70 AD to 1948. And I think that's the ultimate fulfillment of what our friend has here. And in, in many ways, they are still scattered. Only about a third of the Jewish people of the world's planet today live actually in Jerusalem. The rest are scattered, or Israel, I mean. The rest are scattered all over the place. And so continuing those thoughts... That full fulfillment, he says in verse 8, And the whole land declares the Lord, Two-thirds shall be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. 
And we're talking about the Jewish people. These, this, these are very, very sobering words. I said earlier that there are uh, Jews today that refuse to accept the basic understanding of these later passages, and they refer to it as anti-Semitic because it talks about the fact that two-thirds of the Jewish population toward the end of the age is going to be killed. Now, just to put that into context, you, we, many of us were familiar with, I'm sure all of us here are familiar with the Holocaust. And we know that the Holocaust killed one-third of the Jewish population of that particular day. Here we see two-thirds of the Jewish population will be killed. The context, again, is we are in the last days. The, they have signed an agreement with the Antichrist. Scripture makes it very clear it's a seven-year agreement, Daniel chapter 9. You have this seven-year agreement here. About halfway through that agreement, the Antichrist, he, he will reveal his true colors, and he will turn his wrath against the Jewish people. If you're familiar, it talks about how many are going to flee to Petra, the neighboring city, uh, nation of Jordan. They have that rock city there. Many of them will flee to that region there. But two-thirds of the Jewish people will be killed. They'll be cut off, as verse 8 says, and they will perish. Sobering words indeed. Jesus referred to this as the great tribulation. That's where it comes from. Jesus said it. Matthew chapter 24, verse 21, for there shall be great tribulation. So he doesn't say, and that's going to be the great tribulation, but he says there shall be great tribulation. And that final three and a half years uh, of the Antichrist reign on the earth will be a time of great tribulation against the Jewish people, and, and not just the Jewish people, but any folks of faith, even the, those that become believers. Jeremiah refers to this time period. He says, alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it, and it is the time of Jacob's trouble. So that phrase, the time of Jacob's trouble, is the same as the phrase, the period of the great tribulation. Two-thirds of the Jewish people will be cut off. Two-thirds will die. There will be a third that remain alive, but even for those third of the Jews that remain alive, for them, they will begin to experience a time of great fiery trials. It'll be a time of refinement. It'll be a time of testing. We know that. Look at verse 9. He says, And I will put the third into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. Difficult days ahead. Leading up to, remember what we said last week, he began in verse 12 by talking about the end, when Jesus is going to reign victoriously over his people in the millennial kingdom. And then he went and filled in all the details leading up to it. Well, just leading up to the, the full reign of Jesus Christ will be these horrible events that we read here. Where only a third will survive, but even that third will go through the fiery trials of testing and refinement. But even in this... As verse 9 continues on, we see that the grace of God shines through. Because look how verse 9 continues, and it says, And they will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, They are my people, and they will say, The Lord is my God. And again, that coincides with the return of Jesus Christ. And they'll look back, and they'll see the one whom they have pierced. The Lord does not give up on Israel. He will not. It'll be that group that will form, if you will, the nucleus or the core of restored Israel that will be with Christ where Jesus will rule over them in his glorious kingdom. And in that day, the Lord will be their God 
and they will be his people. And when we come back together again next week, the focus of chapter 14 will be that glorious millennial kingdom, referenced in just about every single chapter of the book of Zechariah, but in detail in the final chapter. So read ahead. But now we're going to celebrate communion. So why don't we just take a, a moment. We'll pray. We'll have our worship team come back up. If you're at home and you haven't yet, go grab your elements. Let's pray. Father, we, we are amazed by your grace. Lord, I'm, I'm thinking again of Jesus as he rode into the city of Jerusalem and he began to weep over the city. He did so because he knew the consequences of their rejection of him. And the difficult days ahead that they would experience, the people would experience. And Lord, I'm reminded of it because those consequences were deserved. And Lord, as we think of our own lives, we are men, we're women, we're young people, we have fallen short of the glory of God. And Lord, I can say that because I know myself, I know many of the people in this room, but also because the word of God teaches us that all of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory and that the wages of sin is death. But Lord, just like this passage here, even in that, your grace shines through. But that verse goes on to tell us, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. And so, Father, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's table, and we prepare to celebrate communion with one another, and we just take some time, Lord, to prepare our hearts, but I pray that you would do that work that you are so good at doing, being able to minister to the deep places, 200 different hearts all at the same time. And so, Lord, be present. Minister to us, we pray.